Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we started uh, some weeks ago uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've called this series uh, The Cross-Shaped Community. And today we're in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And you'll notice in just a little bit, our reading is going to begin with the words, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. When we read uh, Paul's letter to the church uh, in Corinth, this young uh, church, this ancient church, we are reading one half of an exchange of letters. So it's kind of like we're listening in on one half of a telephone call. We can hear what Paul's saying to them, uh, and we can learn at different places what they must have asked him. And in the midst of that, we are in, uh, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, we have been in some pretty tough sledding uh, as far as preaching goes and as far as listening goes. Uh, Paul is talking about some incredibly practical at times controversial issues uh, in the life of the church. We were out with some friends uh, last night, and they asked, Dave, next week, is it going to get better? (laughs) You know, is is Paul going to get to talking about Jesus uh, and the gospel and those things again, or are we back to talking about sex again? And I said, oh, no, well, there's a little bit of sex, um, but it's mostly about uh, marriage and singleness and divorce, so more uh, somewhat difficult sledding to go through. But it's important for us to realize that it's taken Paul now six chapters to get to this point. He spent the first uh, five or so chapters of 1 Corinthians laying out the story of the gospel, the story that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is for us in Christ that the Spirit has been poured out into our lives, bringing us to new life, that the way up is down, that the way to life is through sacrificial service as we see on the cross. And so now Paul gets to teaching them through these more practical concerns how they're to live in response to that. You know, Christianity is always in danger of one of two things. One is of talking about the practical concerns of our lives, marriage, divorce, singleness, sexuality, what we eat and drink, those kind of practical concerns apart from a grounding in what God has done for us in the gospel. And in doing that, Christianity becomes just moralism. It just becomes another way of good advice for doing life. And so we need to remember, even as we get into these thornier practical issues that Paul's talking about, that every nitty-gritty practical concern that we face in our lives We face as those who are beloved by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and brought to new life by the Spirit. And so we approach these things uh, not just as natural human beings, but as people with immense resources in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the other danger, though, is that we have a gospel that never really lands where we live our lives, where we talk about who God is and what he's done, but it never gets fleshed out in these most difficult these most tender and vulnerable parts of our lives. And so Paul calls us to remember both things, that we're to be grounded in the gospel, but that that gospel does have everyday, practical, earthy ramifications for how we live our lives. And so uh, this morning, our sermon and our reading is on all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but it is rather lengthy. So we are not going to read it all, but we will uh, touch on it throughout the, uh, the sermon. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Thanks. You can be seated. In the very first pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, in the midst of God's good and beautiful creation, he looks at Adam uh, alone and says, it is not good for the man to be alone. For this reason, uh, a man and woman will leave their father and mother and become one flesh. So from the very beginning of the Bible, it shows us that we are made for relationship. And some of us uh, in the depth of our being have suffered and known that not goodness that God talks about in the first pages of Genesis. We've known the ache of loneliness. We've known uh, the longing for companionship, the longing even for marriage. And we have felt, uh, perhaps for some of us for a short time, perhaps for some of us for a very long time, the reality of what God says here, that it is not good, somehow at a, at a heart and soul level, it is not good for us to be alone. Some of you even this morning are here and you are feeling the ache of that loneliness. Well, then Paul comes along here in 1 Corinthians 7 and says of singleness, 
I wish that all of you were as I am, that is, single. He says uh, those who are married are anxious about many different things, many worldly concerns, but to the one who's single, he or she is able to live their lives with this wholehearted commitment and devotion to the Lord and to the church family. And so you end up with these two uh, different streams running in the Bible. One that acknowledges the fact that we are made for union, that we long in some ways for marriage. And the other, that marriage with it brings all sorts of headaches that Paul seems to be saying, uh, if you can spare yourself those headaches, please do so. And so, Bible, which is it? Which is it? And yet Paul here shows us uh, that whatever our calling, whether we are single or married, that each of those lives, each of those callings bring with them certain blessings and benefits and certain challenges and struggles. And so we find here in 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul actually addresses every single one of us in this room today. Right? Every one of us is either single perhaps uh, having not yet been married or, or never married, perhaps widowed or a widower, perhaps divorced and unmarried. So some of us are, in, are single. Others of us are married. Some of us are happily married. Some of us are just plain married. Um, some of us, it depends on the day in which you're asked. Um, but the reality is that all of us are caught uh, in this instruction that Paul gives for how we're to think about this most important area of our lives, how we approach either our singleness or our marriage. It's amazing to think of the number of hours uh, that your hearts and minds are occupied by, the, by this part of your life. Isn't, I remember I was talking to my youngest son, five years old. I asked him, uh, son, what did you do in recess today? It's usually the only part of his day that I can get him to talk about what did you do in recess today? And he said, oh, mostly just chase girls around. And I thought, yep, it starts early. It starts, it starts young. It sticks with you. And this part occupies so much of our hearts and minds. And so how are we supposed to deal with these longings, uh, these difficulties, these anxieties? Let's look at what Paul says. You know, it's important for us in looking at 1 Corinthians 7 to recognize that Paul is not teaching here in a vacuum. He is responding to a very particular set of questions that have come to him from the Corinthian church, right? This isn't him just saying, hey, I'm going to spend some time now telling you everything you need to know about marriage, but he's responding to a very particular set of questions that are coming from the Corinthian church. He says, now concerning the matters which you wrote, and then he quotes them, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. So what's going on in Corinth is this. There was an assumption uh, in the ancient world, and it seems to be rampant in Corinth, that if you really wanted to attain to real spirituality, if you wanted real knowledge of the Lord, if you really wanted to be a wise person, that it required kind of a, a monk-like rejection of the normal attachments of human life. We call this asceticism. It's the belief that we have to separate ourselves out for the practice and pursuit of God, of wisdom, of real spirituality. And so this was a common belief in the ancient world. We see it in the Greco-Roman religions, both the Stoics and the Cynics, who are the two of the leading philosophical schools. They're leading thinkers, their most wise people, the people who'd attained enlightenment, chose a path of renunciation, of lifelong celibacy, of renunciation of the, of the kind of attachments and concerns of this life. 
We see it also in the early Jewish communities. At this time, there were the Essenes who had moved away into the wilderness to live a monastic kind of life. And so that seems to be what's caught on in Corinth, that there's people within the Corinthian church that are saying, if you really want to be wise, if you really want to be spiritual, what you need to do is to reject the kind of common domestic attachments of this life, like marriage and family. And so what they're saying is, they're saying to Paul, we think that it's better for men and women to remain single and celibate and unattached. What do you say, Paul? Now let's pause there. Because in some ways, this seems so far removed from the ways that most of us think about our lives. Right? Most of us don't think, you know what, I think I'm just going to become a hermit. I'm going to go out, I'm going to move out of the city, I'm not going to be around members of the opposite sex. I'm going to withdraw myself to pursue wisdom and purity and prayer. Right? Maybe, maybe you've felt that temptation at times, but for most of us, that's not where we live our lives. But here, how about this? Think about all of the ways that you, over the course of your life, have thought this. If I really wanted to have a fuller, richer life, I could do it if only blank. Right? How many times have you been single and thought to yourself, I could have such a fuller, richer life if only my condition was different than it is. If only I was married. Then I would be content. Then I would be happy. Then I would be full and my life would be full. Or perhaps in the midst of marriage and the burdens of raising children and the exhaustion that can come into that, you've thought to yourself, if only I could escape this madness. Right? If only I could have a moment of silence and of freedom, if I could get to the point of being an empty nester, right? then my life will be full and rich and complete. Right? Or maybe you've thought about it as it comes to your career. Paul addresses here also servants and masters. Right? Thought, if only I could get to where I need to get, if I could get the kind of job that I long to have, then I wouldn't be stressed about money. Then I wouldn't be anxious about these things. Then I could trust God and experience a fullness of life. Well, what Paul is doing here is critiquing that belief that we have to change our situation in order to experience the richness of life with God. He's, a, he's coming at that belief that I think so many of us carry with us, that happiness is always behind the next door that we open. That happiness is always somehow out there waiting for us to change in some significant way before we can experience it. Because what Paul is going to say is you are made for something deeper than happiness. You are made for the experience of communion with God, of what he calls here uh, devotion to the Lord. And that is available to you no matter your condition. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're in a difficult marriage or in a season of good in your marriage. That at all times and in all ways, your created purpose of enjoyment of God, communion with Him, life with Him, is available and open to you. Paul, in this section, uh, lays out three general principles that get at this restlessness that we in the Corinthians can often feel in our souls. So first, he lays out three principles. We're going to look at those, and then he applies them to three different areas of life. First, these kind of general areas of counsel that Paul lays out. The first is he, he advises all of us, the Corinthians and all of us listening in, that we are to approach our lives with contentment and stability. Contentment and stability. He says we each need to learn to view our lives as a gift from God. He says that in verse 7. 
He says, uh, to each has, each has his own gift, one of one kind and one of another. He's saying each of us needs to learn uh, to recognize our lives as the gift that they are. The word gift there is charis. It's literally the same word that, we, that is translated grace throughout the Bible. That we need to recognize that this life is a gift of God's grace. And whether that particular life that he's called us to in a given time or perhaps for our entire lives is one of singleness or marriage, we're meant to receive this life as a gift, to recognize that we receive it uh, with all of its blessings, with all that it offers. We're meant to receive it as a gift of God's grace. And then he basically urges stability in our lives. He urges us not to be restless for the next thing. He urges us to experience God as he can be found in the midst of the station that he's called us to. Verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition he was called, let him remain with God. Paul, in other places in, the, in this chapter, is going to say it's not that you can't change your station, right? In fact, at one point he says, if you're converted as a servant but have an opportunity to gain your freedom, by all means do so. If you have an opportunity uh, to get married and you find yourself led that way, he says you're free to do so, right? Paul leaves a lot of latitude here. You notice if you read the chapter, all of the times that Paul's saying, uh, I urge you this way, but you're free to do this. Right? And this is from an apostle, a man who had the authority and knew how to say, this is my word, don't go against it. Here it gives a lot of latitude, but in general he says, live your life with a sense of contentment that the life that you lead, you lead as a gift from God. And when given a choice, choose stability. Don't go restlessly rushing from one relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship. Don't be attached to the myth that if you can change your situation that then somehow... Uh, the central dilemmas of your inner life will be, will be remedied. But live your life with contentment and with stability. Then he urges us to remember the point of our entire lives. Really, you can sum up the entire chapter here with verse 35. He says, I write this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What he says is this, is that the purpose of your, of your life, the purpose of either your singleness or your marriage, is your devotion to the Lord. And you can pursue that no matter what your station in life, no matter your calling at this time. You can so order your life, order the desires of your heart in Christ, so that you're centered on devotion and life with God. You know, the scriptures tell us that the point of our marriage or of our singleness of our widowhood or of our divorce. The point of all of it is found in honoring and glorifying God. Right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of men and women? What's the purpose behind all of our lives? And the answer that these, these older Christians gave centuries ago is that the chief end, the created purpose of each one of us is to both glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to bring him glory and honor, to worship him in every bit of our lives, and to enjoy his presence both in this life and then stretching on into eternity. And Paul urges us here to say, don't wait for your circumstances to change 
before you devote your life to God's glory and to the enjoyment of his presence. Wherever you are in life, you can order it around God's glory and the enjoyment of his presence. The question then isn't, can we glorify God? Can we enjoy God? But how? How is a married person? Do I glorify and enjoy God in my relationships with my spouse, perhaps with my children? As a single person, how do I glorify and enjoy God in my relationships, in my vocation? As a widowed or as a divorced person, how do I bring God glory and enjoy his grace and his presence in whatever he's called us to do? And then finally, his third principle uh, is that we're supposed to remember that all of this is temporary. There's a weird thing that goes on as you read this chapter, which is Paul talks about singleness and marriage with this sense of the impending end of the world hanging over all of it. He says that, you know what? It's good for you to remain in your condition in light of the present distress that we're in and in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come back soon. And to us, that seems odd, right? It's like you you picked up a book on marriage and relationships and accidentally opened a left-behind novel, right? It's like, what, what does one have to do with the other? And yet Paul is reminding us that whether you're single or whether you're married, that our callings in this life, every single one of them are temporary. None of them can bring us the fulfillment of lasting joy, the sense of consummated union that we long for, the sense that everything in our lives will be right. Only the return of Christ can bring us that. Only the restoration of everything that's broken. And so he urges us, you know what, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're in a a position of high employment or you're in a position of servitude, it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. One day your heart will have all that it has longed for in this life when Christ returns. And so he takes those three principles, contentment and stability, uh, ordering our lives around devotion to the Lord and the temporary passing nature of life, and he applies it to three different conditions that we might find ourselves in. First, uh, he applies it to singleness, to the life of the unmarried And his advice here largely applies whether you are uh, single um, and have always been single or whether you find yourself post-divorce or post the death um, of a spouse. His advice catches uh, all of these different situations. And the amazing thing about what Paul does here is that he fills singleness with a dignity and an honor that almost no other writer in the ancient world ever did. He considers singleness a valid, lifelong state for the Christian. He refuses any way of looking at the world that would say that unless you're married, you can't have a fulfilled and meaningful life. Unless you're married, you can't know community and love and acceptance. And that was the common operating procedure of the day, that if you were an unattached single, you were essentially adrift in the ancient world. Marcus Aurelius, uh, the later uh, philosopher emperor of Rome, actually passed laws to make it a penalty, to penalize women who remained single for too long after their husband died. Interesting, there were no such laws for single men, um, but he passed this law, and into that kind of world, into a world that said, we will place legal sanction on you if you don't move towards marriage. Paul says, I wish that you all 
had the same calling I do of remaining single uh, in this life. And I think we need to hear this. I think we need to hear this, especially uh, living situated as we do in the South, uh, where the common assumption is that if you haven't paired off by the time you're 22, maybe, um, that somehow uh, your life is going to be empty and meaningless, as though somehow uh, you are not going to find fulfillment, as though you're not going to find either a spouse or a full life. I think this pressure is especially keen and high on women in our culture uh, that are oftentimes led to believe that unless you are a wife and a mother, that you are somehow not fulfilling the calling that God has on your life. And into that world, Paul says, if you have the chance to remain single, please do. It is a good and noble path to walk in this life. And let each one walk in the grace, the gift of the life that they have been given. Paul's reasons for this, he says, are so that you can wholeheartedly devote yourself to God, both to his mission in the world, loving your neighbors, and giving yourself uh, to the community that he's placed you in, in the church. And a few words uh, about singleness, uh, practically. You know, Paul, Paul was a single man. We think from verses 8 and 9 that he might himself have been a widower, Uh, that his wife may have died because he says to the single and to the widowed, I wish that you would remain as I am. And the word there is basically for the widower and for the widow. Uh, Would that you remain as I am. We don't know for sure. That's a little bit of conjecture. But we think Paul might have lost his wife uh, earlier in his life and then remained in a position of singleness for his whole life. And yet he says, I would that you could remain as I am in the same kind of state uh, that I am in. And so it's worth saying, what is this state uh, that Paul was in? Because I believe, uh, and I believe the scriptures attest, that God does call some people uh, to singleness, whether for your entire life or for a significant portion of your life. That it is a calling that God has on some of us. God calls some of us to singleness. But hear me, he calls none of us to isolation. He calls none of us uh, to a life wrapped up entirely in ourselves. He calls us to live lives that are wrapped in community. It is just as true for the singles in this room as for the married folks in this room. The words of Genesis 2, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for woman to be alone. We are made for others. The scriptures tell us uh, that God is a kind of God who places the lonely in families. And that's a picture of what he does. That's talking about what he does in enveloping in the body of the church, both married and single together in one household, in one family. And so uh, this means, this is a challenge and a call to us to live our lives in an integrated way amidst our church. Married folks, this means when you think, who are we going to hang out with for dinner tonight? It doesn't mean, it means you you move beyond simply asking, well, who has kids in the same age group as ours that they can play well with? Or who do we have, or who can we, uh, who do you have a couple friend with that I have a couple friend with that we can mesh well together with? But we think uh, intentionally about reaching out towards one another. Singles, it means the same thing, even though I know it's often, it can feel intimidating. To reach out to the families and the married folks in your life and say, hey, what are y'all doing tonight? We can get used to assuming that, that, that others in the church probably have a whole lot more full social calendar than we do. And so we all end up sitting by the phone and waiting. And this is a call to do our lives together, 
young and old, married and single, in one family. One of the things that we often overlook in Paul's epistles, uh, you know, usually it comes at the end of his letters. It's a section that oftentimes we skim past and skip, is this incredible list of names that Paul tends to begin and end his letters with. Right? If you've ever been reading through the Bible, you get to the last chapters of most of his letters, and it turns into, uh, tell such and such that I said hi, these people over in Ephesus, and their greetings to these people over here in Corinth. And you just go, yeah, 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 okay. Everybody says hi. But think about that. Paul, a single man, lists hundreds of names, actual names of men and women, that he was in their life, he was in their homes, he was constantly with them. Even if we look to the end of this letter, in 1 Corinthians 16, after going through this, this many different list of names, when Timothy comes, welcome him, I've told Apollos to come and visit. Uh, these brothers and sisters say hello. In verse 17, he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacius, because they have made up for your absence. These we, these, we think, are visitors that came from Corinth to visit Paul in Ephesus. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. We are, you hear what Paul said? They refreshed my spirit. God has made us so that our spirits are refreshed, our souls are refreshed by deep friendships, by being in one another's lives. And Paul calls us to that, whether we're married or single. Next, Paul turns his attention uh, from the single folks to the married people. And here, he points us to remember that, uh, that just as he says, I wish you could remain as I am, yet if you're married, you exist with your spouse in the same way to devote yourself to one another and to your glory and enjoyment of the Lord. The late uh, musician Leonard Cohen, who died last year, uh, I think it was la yeah, last year, said this in an interview late in his life. He says, marriage is the hottest furnace of the spirit today. He goes on to say, it is much more difficult than solitude, much more challenging for people who want to work on themselves. It is a situation in which there are no alibis, and it is excruciating most of the time, but it's only in this situation that any kind of real work can be done. 